Psalm 29 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Psalm 29. It is a psalm of David. I'm going to read all 11 verses. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in His temple all cry, Glory! The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. You probably notice, even on the first read, if you just go through that text for the, even the first time, you probably notice that there are words that are repeated quite frequently throughout the psalm. The first two verses open with the word ascribe, repeated there a few times. Then verses 3 to 9 uh, have the word repeated there, voice of the Lord. And then you get to verse 10, and twice is repeated, the Lord sits enthroned. And then in verse 11, you have twice repeated, may the Lord, as a benediction there at the close of the psalm. So it's, it's relatively easy to see, even at just a cursory glance, that there are some natural divisions within this psalm. And I think that's the most important first step as you encounter a psalm for the first time is to see how the poem, they are poems meant to be sung after all, how the poem breaks down for the same reason that if I put to you before you a, a, just a modern hymn, it was all just jammed together, line after line after line, it would be important for you to look through it and sort of separate out what is the chorus that's meant to be repeated, what is the, the, the first verse and the second verse, and in that you would see the progression that the author makes through the song. You can see that most of our hymns that we sing on Sunday morning or most of the hymns that you'll find in the hymn book have a gospel narrative that is repeated. There's the glory of God. There is the sinful state of mankind. There is the redemption bought to, brought to us in Christ. There is the eventual coming of the Lord. These are a progression that the author makes through that particular psalm. And then you, as you separate them out, you can see what the psalm is really or the song is really saying. Same is true of the Psalms. And sometimes that's easier to do than others. But this time, David makes it really easy on us because of these repeated word choices. So we have a breakdown of verses 1 and 2 as one stanza. Then you have 3 to 9. And then you have 10 and 11 as a closing benediction. And these first two sections of this Psalm are really taking place in two different locations. 
That's an important distinction to make between these two first stanzas. They're, they're in different locations. The first two verses are toward a group located in heaven that David simply refers to, or the ESV translates, heavenly beings. And then you see in verses 3 to 9, there is this picture of a progressive storm that is sweeping across the earth. Then finally the storm is over at the conclusion of the psalm and the final benediction there, and David closes the psalm. And so what we're going to see in this psalm, when we break it down like that, is that there are some themes that emerge. In addition to those repeated words that I just named, the word Yahweh is repeated 18 times in this psalm, which is significant. It's a lot of Yahweh. Glory is used four times. Splendor or majesty, which is the same word, is used twice in addition to the repeated words that I've already mentioned. So you've got a lot of repetition in this psalm. And what is it doing? It's all demonstrating the worthiness of God to be worshipped. That's its point. That's what this psalm is coming to you with. And it brings ancient and modern audiences together with the same question. Why do we gather together and worship? Why is it that we actually come together and worship? What is the purpose of our worship of God? In other words, why are we here? Why do we get up on Sunday morning when much of the rest of the world is asleep? Why do we wake our kids up when we know that Sunday morning is the only morning that they will sleep in? Why do we go into their bedroom and say, every other morning you wake me up at six, but now you are sound asleep and I have to wake you up? Why is it that we do that? Why do we come together in a place and gather with people that otherwise we might not have anything in common with. And yet we come together and we call ourselves one body and worship. Fundamentally, what is the why behind our worship? This morning we're going to look at the three sections of this psalm. And what I think we will find is the reason for our worship. The reason that we're here, an answer to that question of the why behind our worship. And believe it or not, the answer that we're going to come to is the same answer we would come to thousands of years ago if we were in David's congregation. It's the same answer. It's been the same answer, believe it or not, since Adam and Eve were in the garden. It's the same answer. And it's actually the purpose for which we exist. It's also the purpose that we will serve for eternity to come. So, needless to say, it's important that we get this answer right. As I said, the first two stanzas are location-based, and so before we get to the response of the people at the very end, we'll see the first stanza is addressed to a congregation in heaven. All right, so a congregation in heaven is where we're looking at first. He starts off with an address here. It's not to God. We've seen that before. A lot of times in the Psalms, he starts off with an address to God. This time he doesn't. Look, at the ESV translates it here as, O heavenly beings. And I have to confess, 
that I am not crazy about that translation because literally the words are sons of God. The ESV has a note you'll probably see in your Bibles out next to heavenly beings that will probably footnote some reference there to sons of God or it might say in yours sons of might. And I don't really like sons of might either. It's literally Benael, which means literally sons of God. It's very simple. Anybody could translate it. So I think it should be sons of God. Who is this group of individuals that he's addressing? Who is he calling out to? And why is he talking to them? Well, there's little doubt that this is either a full congregation of angels, just what the Bible refers to as the heavenly angels, or potentially to a specific group inside of that heavenly of the heavenly angels referred to sometimes as the heavenly council we see this group appear sometimes in job as one example most notably in job 1 6 where he says now there was a day when the sons of god came to present themselves before the lord and satan also came among them there's also job 2 1 just following after that again there was a day when the sons of god came to present themselves before the lord and satan also came among them to present himself before the lord and then there's job 38 6 to 7 this is the end of the book where god is actually talking to job and he's talking about the laying the foundations of the earth and he says on what were its bases sunk who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This chorus was there when he laid the foundations of the earth, in other words. And that last passage there in Job, in particular, tells us that this group that the Old Testament refers to, sometimes as the sons of God, were there when the earth was formed, and they shouted with joy when he laid its foundations. It was a moment of celebration. These also form some sort of counsel earlier on in Job through which God rules his heavenly realm. So when it comes to the heavenly realm, there is lots in that that we do not understand. And it's pretty rare in Scripture that we get a peek behind the curtain. And I don't want to presume is to say too much as to what goes on there because Quite frankly, in the Bible, we're just not told tons about how that works. And so, rather than just speculate on that, we'll just stick to what the Bible says. It looks like David is referring to this group called a heavenly counselor, the sons of God. And the Bible sometimes, though, does give us a glimpse behind the curtain. And when it, when it does, it becomes pretty clear that there is this group there that is gathered around the throne of God perhaps angels, perhaps archangels, that sing praises to the name of God, and David is calling out to this group. The point is that David here is issuing a call to worship. This has always been the case. For thousands of years, people have gathered together to sing praises to the name of God, and they have started with a call to worship. It's fallen out of favor in modern congregations to some extent. We do that here every single Sunday. We do a responsive call to worship. Now we've done just a regular call to worship where we just remind ourselves that God is inviting us in. He's invited His people in to worship Him. So remember, David is doing a call to worship here, but he's not doing it to an earthly congregation. 
He's doing it to a heavenly congregation. And he's calling out to a heavenly temple. It's clear from the outset that David here is reflecting on the splendor of the Lord. He's he's enraptured by the splendor of the Lord, and he's urging the angels who are gathered around his throne, tell us what he's like. You know better than anybody what it's like to see his face, to stand there in his throne room. You know better than anyone what it's like to be around the throne of God. I want you to imagine just for a second that you were instantly transported to the heavenly throne room. Perhaps it comes down, perhaps you go up, whatever it is, you're there. You're instantly right there before the throne of God. Perhaps like John, maybe in Revelation 4, you just you get a glimpse behind the curtain where you see the worship that's going on around the throne of God. You see God for all He's worth. You can almost sense David's mind is going where it's going as he, as he composes this psalm. But see, David here is playing the role of conductor. And at the other end of his baton is a legion of angels. And he's tapping the podium here, and he's saying, you sing for us. Tell us of his greatness. Give us the songs that are filled with majesty and glory and all the praise due his name. Can you imagine for just a second what pure, unadulterated worship of God must be like? Quite honestly, it's one of the more difficult parts of our worship today is that we worship in fallen bodies with fallen minds in a fallen world. We deal with distractions, right and left. It's too cold in here. It's too warm in here. I can't breathe because of her perfume. Does he know how off-key he really is? The distractions are endless. And even if we had everything just right, no perfumes, temperature magically hit everyone right where they want it to be. Nobody was singing off key. Everybody was perfectly on key. Even if we had everything just right, don't we find it difficult to sing and really imagine standing around the throne of God, singing praises to His name. Don't we find it difficult sometimes to do that? David is calling out to the heavenly beings who have first-hand knowledge of exactly what God is like to sing, ascribe to Him majesty and wonder and power and glory. Sing for us. Let us know. But then he moves to earth which is the next part of the psalm. Now, I want you to put in your mind a picture of David, and he's sitting high on a hilltop. Perhaps he's in the, on the balcony of some castle somewhere. 
And he's looking out over the Mediterranean Sea. Have you ever seen the Mediterranean Sea? It's beautiful. Blue, crystal clear. You can see to the bottom. It is wonderful. Imagine David is sitting on a, on a mountaintop somewhere, a cliff maybe, and he's got a castle up there, and he's sitting on a balcony. He's looking out over the Mediterranean Sea. And on the horizon, out over the vast sea that spread before him, these storm clouds begin to gather. And they start rolling in towards him off the sea. Now what follows in verses 3 to 9 is David comparing the glory and strength of the Lord that he experiences here on earth in a thunderstorm. So unlike the angels who are gathered around his throne, David and you and I don't have the kind of sensory perception that they do. What David is seeing here is a storm cloud brewing, and he's comparing that. What he sees in nature to the glory of God, the angels see around the throne. So think what's, what, what he's doing here for just a second. The sons of God have firsthand knowledge of the, of the glory and strength of the Lord. But we can see his glory and his might in the things that he's made. As an example here, this thunderstorm rolling in off the Mediterranean. Now something you, you need to know is that throughout the Old Testament, the word for voice and the word for thunder are often used synonymously. So there's a word for thunder that can just mean thunder. But often the Old Testament will use the word voice for thunder, which you see repeated here over and over and over again. So in some sense, thunder is the voice of the storm. And so David is saying here, the thunder that I hear is the voice of the Lord preceding its glory, His glory, as He comes in, as He rolls in. So there are many layers to verses 3 to 9, and He's wanting you, the worshiper, to just imagine for just a second the glory of the Lord. And think of like maybe the glory of a thunderstorm, how its voice announces that it's coming. And the power and the majesty that's contained within it. And how helpless you are in the midst of it. But in verse 3, when he says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. Do you hear echoes there of Genesis 1, verses 2 and 3? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. What did he do? Did he mix up a potion and pour it out? Did he wave a wand? The kids are answering for you. It's not just rhetorical. You can answer. No. He spoke. His voice commanded galaxies to pop into existence. So the voice that we're seeing here is no ordinary voice of a storm. It's no ordinary voice of thunder coming in. The voice of God hovers over the waters, and what it brings to David's mind is the same voice that many years prior created the universe from nothing. The kind of power that comes with that voice. 
So as David looking out over and seeing this storm rolling in, he's using all he knows as a mortal man that's contained within the Word of God to help you catch a glimpse of what the angels are looking at every day in the heavenly temple. What they hear on a daily basis. The thundering sound of the voice of God who created the heavens and the earth. Look now at how the storm progresses as it moves through the psalm. Verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. David is, is sitting on this balcony, let's say, and, and the storm rolls in. He hears the voice of the storm a long way off, but then what comes out of a voice? It's breath. It's wind. It's momentum coming forth out of the storm, and it whooshes through the balcony. It blows his hair back as it moves across Lebanon, and it's, as, as, it's, as it's ripping through the land, it's bringing with it fury, and, and it possesses power and strength so much that it, it, it snaps the cedars of Lebanon. It's too powerful for David to even stand up, but at the same time, he can't avert his eyes from the majesty of this storm as it's rolling through. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Don't, don't picture a Christmas tree. That's not the kind of cedars we're talking about. Cedars of Lebanon are hulking trees. They're massive trees. The trunk, you couldn't even probably wrap your arms a third of the way around, a quarter of the way around. Huge trunks. Grow into deep hillsides and massively tall. The voice of the Lord, the wind of the storm is ripping through the land and it snaps them in two like they're nothing. Look at verse 6. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. If you've ever looked at a pasture filled with animals when a storm rolls in, what do you see? They all start running. To what? They don't know. They just want to run. They want to get away from whatever is coming, from the fury of whatever is coming. And so David sees the storm rolling in and the animals scattering. But what does it make him think of? Because here, of course, it's not calves and it's not wild oxen that are running before the Lord. It is geographical territories. It's mountains. It's lands. It's provinces. It's countries that are running before the Lord like they are wild oxen. Mountains like Syrian, which is also known as Mount Hermon. They flee before the storm rolling in. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. So here come the lightning strikes. They're hitting the ground. The storm is very real now. They're snapping tree. They're, they're lighting things on fire. David depicts them as flames of fire coming out of the mouth of the Lord as he speaks, lightning, as the lightning comes forth out of the cloud. Look at verse 8. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The storm cloud gather, gathers over a wilderness. A wilderness is, in the Bible, a really a desolate wasteland. It's not a forest of like trees. It's, it's a desolate wasteland. Tell me, what is out in a desolate wasteland to shake? Nothing. David says, the very wilderness shakes. The ground shakes. That's how powerful this storm is 
as well. It makes the sprigs of grass quake in fear. Look at verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. Now, there's a couple of ways you could understand here the deer giving birth. It could either be translated, as it is here in the ESV, makes the deer give birth, or potentially it could be translated, makes the oak to shake. Wildly different, isn't it? Yeah, I know. It's also the reason that Hebrew professors are supposed to be very gracious to their students. Hebrew is by far the hardest language I've ever looked at before in my life. Now, it could be one or the other. I think makes the oak to shake makes much more sense in this context, and it pairs nicely with the words around it. However, if David does mean here the deer gives birth, then I think he could be saying, as the forest is stripped bare, as the train of his robe of the storm moves through, you've got the fall going on. What happens in the fall? The leaves fall off the trees. As the storm moves in and shakes the trees, the wind and all of that, what happens to the leaves? They all hit the ground. Well, if the deer is laying down, about to give birth, what happens when her habitat is stripped bare? She goes into early labor. And so, potentially, that's what David could mean here, if that's what it should be translated as. I'm not making a decision one way or the other, but I do think the oak quaking is probably makes a little bit more sense here. But the point is that as the Lord moves through, as the storm moves through, it lays creation itself bare behind him, leaving nothing in his wake. But if you notice, the storm also has a path. Look at this. David mentions three locations here. Lebanon in verse 5, Syrian in verse 6, and Kadesh in verse 8. Lebanon is north of the land of Israel. Syrian is just south of that. So still north of the land of Israel, but just south of that in a mountain range. It's also called Mount Hermon, which you may have in your Bible there, Mount Hermon. And it's, it's, a, it's another mountain that's just north of the land of Israel. And then the wilderness of Kadesh Barnea, which is all the way in the south of Israel, just to the south of Israel. So you can picture David sitting there on his balcony as this storm cloud moves in. It sweeps across Lebanon. It sweeps across the Mount Hermon. And then it goes all the way down south to Kadesh Barnea. What does it sweep across? It sweeps across all God's people in the middle right there in the promised land. God's people are left in his wake as it sweeps from all the way up in, in Lebanon all the way down to Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea at the end. Then he comes to the final call at the end of verse 9. In his temple, all cry glory. This is interesting, because he's certainly calling out to the heavenly temple that he called out to at the beginning of the passage, and so that at the display of the mighty hand of God, everyone that's in his temple should resound with a shout of glory at the power and majesty that is on display right here before him. So in other words, what should bring all of heaven 
to its knees in unison as they praise the Lord that has been displayed in His mighty works before Him, the the thing that should bring them to collapse is the sheer might and power on display. David says, the glory and strength in verse 1. They of all created beings know this all too well because they serve around His throne on a daily basis. But if you remember the story of the Old Testament, as it moves on from the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve are kicked out of the presence of God, the earthly temple there in the garden, as they're removed from that, they, mankind sort of wanders somewhat aimlessly without a way of actually going into the presence of God. And that continues until we get to the tabernacle there in Exodus. Remember that? Exodus 19 and following, where his people gather around Sinai. And then there's the long instructions that's many chapters long at the close of the book of Exodus, where God lays out instructions for Moses. And Moses passes these along to the people, the instructions for building a tabernacle. What is the tabernacle for? Well, the tabernacle is so that mankind can reconvene with God again. They can meet in the presence of God again. The tabernacle, though, is patterned after the heavenly temple. Did you know that? That what David is calling out to here, to his angels, to celebrate in, the, heaven, the, the earthly tabernacle is patterned after that. And then when the temple is constructed, it becomes a more ornate, more permanent version of the same thing. It's also patterned as a replica after the heavenly temple where the angels are currently gathered. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 8.5, they, that is the priests who serve in the temple, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. That's the reason at the end of Exodus you get this big long explanation, detail after detail, down to the style of the curtains as to what those curtains should actually look like because they're patterned after something that is real and very important. So remember then that these psalms are actually meant to be sung congregationally. That David's audience who's reading this is meant to come together and sing these as praise to God on the grounds, same as the angels, of his glory and his strength as they encounter the tabernacle, which is an earthly copy of the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple, where the angels are currently commanded to sing. They're commanded to sing about his glory and his strength, like the strength demonstrated here in the storm that's passing over the land. It's a command to all people in the temple, in the tabernacle. Look around you! Look at creation. See what he's made. Look at his mighty works. Praise his name for his strength. David says this is all a reflection of his majesty, of his might, and of his power. He commands the most powerful of storms even at his fingertips. 
There is a why behind our worship. And this is part of the why. It's very simple. Because he's powerful. Because he's majestic. Because he's glorious. Why do we gather together on Sunday? Why do we gather together at all? And sing praises to his name because he's majestic and glorious and powerful and strong. Because all of creation is created by him and for him. Why do we gather as a people to sing? Because he's worthy of our praise. That's the answer. Because he's worthy of it. All of this, all of us, all of this church exists to bring glory and praise to his name. Do you understand that? Our purpose, let's say something that might be inflammatory at first, hold on. Our purpose is not evangelism. Our purpose is worship. Evangelism exists to bring other people into that worship. There will be a day, believe it or not, when evangelism is no more. But worship will continue forever. We exist to bring glory to His name. We're bringing people into the worship of God. The one who is judge of all, who sees all deeds, whether righteous or wicked, who lets nothing go on the slide, who is an avenger of the weak, who looks after the poor and the widow, the one who rights all wrongs. That's the one we are coming to sing about. Now, this can sometimes inflame our sensibilities, I think. Sometimes, especially in this psalm, we can think about storms, let's say. And we can get wrapped up in the fact that they're pretty violent, storms are. They leave a lot of disaster in their wake. This town knows all too well what a tornado can do. It can cause damage. And many people can be caught in its wake. What an awful picture of violence. And you're telling us that this very God who has this kind of power and who wields it is the one that we should Come around. The impetus behind me coming together and worshiping God is that he's like this? That he's powerful and strong? That's terrible and scary. And we're supposed to worship the Lord when we're filled with terror at the sight of him? Is that what you're telling me? At the power that he wields? How are we supposed to be excited about worshiping that? Well, let's look at the aftermath. Not only do I understand the reservation that might be there, even in the back of your mind, maybe in places that you would never admit to, I understand the reservation, and I think David does as well. In the aftermath, the last two verses here, the storm is over. Skies are still. But the ground, do you notice what's on the ground? It's a flood. That word actually recalls back to Genesis 6. Do you remember the flood in Genesis 6? The awful creating power that we saw from Genesis 1 is now sweeping through the land and leaves behind in its wake 
flood. The Genesis 6 flood. Now, floods in the modern world are disastrous. Floods in David's world are terrible, are even worse. Look at how the psalm ends in verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The why behind our worship is not only because of the might and power of the Lord, but also, as David prays for here, because he is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. See, for the earth, the fury of the storm means judgment. Perhaps that's even why David calls out to the heavenly beings to sing, because we're underwater. For the earth, the fury of the storm means judgment, but storms have two purposes. Judgment can be one, but blessing can be another. So an effect of the sinful world that we live in is that it must be judged by this righteous and holy and all-powerful God. But the same waters that come to wash away also bring growth and they bring vitality to the land. They're necessary. They bring life and health to the land. But do you notice who the ones are that are safe from the storm? Who are they? Well, David prays it will be the people of God. But for sure, the ones who are safe from the fury of his wrath are those inside his temple. In the midst of this storm that's ripping through the nation, the ones inside the temple are safe. Some 2,000 years ago, a man, a man by the name of Jesus, you ever heard of him? Came to the earth. John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So wait a second. The one that was celebrated by the sons of God at the creation, the foundations of the earth, th this word that John is talking about is, is one and the same? The very one. The one who commands the storm, is this the one John is talking about? One and the same. John goes on in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, that is, tabernacled, among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as, the only, as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The temple of God, in other words, came and took up residence on the earth. But Paul tells us about his purpose. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20 to 21. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So then in Christ, the temple of God, God brought the fury of his wrath down. On his own temple, Jesus comes in and clears it out and then stands in the doorway of his own temple. And the fury of the floods of the wrath of God come down on the temple and wash it clean. But you see, now that the temple has been washed clean, by the blood of Christ, it is safe for his people to enter. But I'll do you one better. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So listen. Here's the beauty. This is where that psalm turns magically. If you're in Christ... You are welcomed into the presence of God to join with the chorus of angels as we do Sunday by Sunday singing praise to the all-powerful, almighty creator of heaven and earth. The one who commands the storm and who sits above the flood, who will judge the living and the dead. And we worship him because of who he is. But we also worship him because of what he's done. In Christ He has ensured that anyone inside his temple or anyone in whom his temple dwells is safe from the fury of his wrath. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? What's true of us in Christ is that we're safe from the fury of his wrath. In Christ, he has ensured that in his temple there is peace. He has answered David's prayer as his living embodiment of his temple we sing glory to God because in Christ that's exactly what he's brought us he's brought us peace we also welcome others to come in we stand at the doorway of the temple asking others to come in to this gospel Or let the temple of God dwell in you as well. Repent of your sin. Believe in Christ, the temple of God, who became sin for you, that you might be saved from the fury of the storm. And then they too are welcome to sing glory. Because the same God who is mighty and powerful is also merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. Now, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And before we do, I want you to take just a moment, 30 seconds or so, to confess any sin that remains, any sin that's come to mind, any sin that might make you, in other words, feel guilty. taking of the blood of and body of Christ. Take 30 seconds or so.
This bread represents the body of Christ. The living embodiment of the temple of God who took the fury of the storm of his wrath for you. For his children. With this bread, we're all claiming sanctuary inside the temple. All of us are coming together a Sunday-by-Sunday basis claiming we still need this. It is only by the blood of Christ that we are welcomed at his table. This bread is not for those who think they might want to follow Christ. It is not even for those who have decided to follow Christ, but it is only for those who have decided to follow Christ and have done so by profession of faith and having gone public with that profession of faith in baptism. So if you have not done so, we would ask that you refrain from taking the Lord's Supper, but anyone else is more than willing and able to to partake with us. For us, this bread is a reminder that in the midst of a twisted generation, we claim sanctuary in the body of Christ. This cup is a reminder of the blood of Christ that was shed for us. It is only by his blood that we're cleansed of sin. It is his blood that was poured on the mercy seat of the temple. Through his blood, the temple curtain was torn in two. His blood cleanses you of sin and allows you to enter into that temple, into safety from the fury of the flood. We do this in memory, but also in celebration of what he has done for us in shedding his blood. The song that we're about to sing is after Psalm 50, pattern after Psalm 50. And we sang it last week. It's new. I get it. Not everybody knows it. We're learning it. That's okay. Everybody's learning it for the first time. That's fine. So it can be a little bit difficult at first, but you'll get it, I think, as you sing along. The tune is pretty easy to follow, but I want you to pay attention to the lyrics. Here they are. Listen to this. You made the starry hosts. You traced the mountain peaks. You paint the evening sky with wonders. The earth, it is your throne. From desert to the sea, all nature testifies your splendor. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sing His greatness. All creation. Praise the Lord. Raise your voice, you heights and all you depths. From furthest east to west, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. You reached into the dust. In love your spirit breathed. You formed us in your very likeness. To know your wondrous works, to tell your mighty deeds, to join the everlasting chorus. Let symphonies resound, let drums and choirs ring out. All heaven hear the sound of worship. Let every nation bring its honors to the King, a roar of harmonies eternal. Now, you're all invited in to sing glory to that. If you can't sing glory to that, what can you sing? Let's pray 
and then we'll stand and sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for an opportunity to gather together as your body, to sing praises to your name, to take of the cup and the bread to remind us of what you have done for us in Christ. I pray for every heart in this place that as we all collectively and individually reflect on what Christ has done for us on the cross, taking your wrath for your children so that there is now no more condemnation for us in Christ. We are grateful. May our hearts be true and respond in praise and adoration, not only for who you are, but also for what you've done in Christ. Amen.